All right, well, let's uh, begin our time with prayer, and we will start. We're going to finish Colossians 1 tonight, so um, looking forward to a great portion, encouraging portion of God's Word. Father in heaven, we are so grateful and thankful to be here tonight. We're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his work that we saw last week of reconciliation that we can have peace now with God because of the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you for uh, Paul's work in the ministry. We thank you that it's an encouragement to us, no matter what our gifts are and how we might use them for your glory, that you give us that same sustaining power and grace that you gave our brother Paul. We thank you for the church at Colossae and uh, looking forward to meeting some of those saints when we get to glory and lord i do thank you for these ladies here this evening i pray for them that you would give them the ability to listen after a perhaps exhausting day or a distracting day and thank you for our time and i pray that you'll give grace in christ's name amen Well, most of you know R.C. Sproul, who is a well-known author and radio speaker, and he tells the story about having an exchange with one of his students, and I quote him. He says, I remember a starry-eyed college student who looked at me and said in wonderment, what was it like for you when you were just a minister? R.C. said, I lost it. What do you mean, just a minister? Don't you realize the parish ministry is the highest calling on earth? God had only one son, and he made him a preacher, end of quote. Now, some of you perhaps feel that way, you know, when you go to the doctor's office and you fill out those things and it asks you, what's your occupation? And uh, you put housewife, or you might put homeschool mom, or something like that. And maybe you're asked, oh, you mean you're, you're just a keeper at home? I mean, you're just a housewife? I mean, you're just a homemaker? You homeschool your kids? And you might want to lose it like R.C. did and say, what do you mean just a housewife? Don't you know the highest calling that God gave to women was to be a homemaker? Or don't you know that homeschooling my children is a blessing and a privilege? Now you might be saying, Susan, what does all this have to do with this lesson? Well, Paul was called to the ministry and it wasn't that he was just a minister, but ladies, he was divinely called to minister. And we're going to learn a bit, quite a bit really tonight, about this man, Paul, who was just in the ministry. And I trust it will be an encouragement to you. This lesson has really been an encouragement to me this week, but an encouragement to you no matter what your spiritual gifts are, no matter what you do, whether you're a homemaker or you work or whatever, I pray uh, that it will be an encouragement to you when you consider what God has divinely called you personally to do. Now, for those of you that weren't here last time we were together, we talked about the reconciliation of Christ and how we are reconciled through the blood of the cross and through the death of Christ. We also learned that those who are reconciled were once alienated from Christ. They're enemies of the Lord, and they were involved in all kinds of wickedness. We saw the reasons we're reconciled is so that we might be holy, blameless, and above reproach. And then we saw, lastly, we can know, one of the ways we know for sure that we're saved or that we are reconciled is that we remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the faith. And we do not apostatize from the faith. 
And if you remember last week, Paul ends his thoughts that this gospel that he preached, he preached everywhere and that he was a minister of this gospel. And so Paul not only writes about his call to ministry, but he writes about the cost of ministry. And we're going to finish chapter one tonight of Colossians and we'll begin in verse 24 if you'll follow along with me. Notice what Paul writes, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind the afflictions of Christ and my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church of which I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man and all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. For this I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, your outline for this evening, we're going to look at Paul's rejoicing in ministry from verse 24, his responsibility in ministry, verses 25 to 27, his reason for ministry, verse 28, his resource in ministry, verse 29, and that will be where we will end for tonight. So let's look at his rejoicing in ministry. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So if you're taking notes, Paul's attitude in ministry was one of rejoicing. And ladies, did you notice according to this verse, he was rejoicing in the sufferings of ministry, not just the happy times of ministry. In fact, when Paul says that he is rejoicing in his sufferings, the Greek word there means he is calmly, cheerful, or happy. And the suffering that he's talking about is his hardships and his pain. Now, ladies, I find this is an incredible statement that the Apostle Paul is saying. How could he say such a thing? How could he say that he's rejoicing in his sufferings while he is there in prison? Well, one man answers it for us very well. He said, people lose their joy when they become self-centered, thinking they deserve better circumstances or treatment than they are getting, end of quote. Ladies, Paul did not let the difficulties of his ministry rob him of his joy or make him want to abandon the ministry. And uh, I have to tell you, um, sometimes I am greatly tested in this. And this last year has been an interesting year for me, but one incident stands out as, I think, above all others when um, this summer I was... Uh, teaching and during one of the breakout times we were having lunch this lady came up to me and she was in a rage and she said I want to speak to you outside and I said okay and I saw Debbie was busy I've, I've learned on these trips if somebody wants to speak to me I bring Debbie with me but this time she was busy so I thought oh, I can handle this and so the woman started shaking her finger at me and I'm going to reprove you and I'm going to exhort you and then she grabbed me in the shoulders and started shaking me and and I thought, well, I think I'm bigger than her. If she starts slugging me, I think maybe I can slug her back, even though I wouldn't have. But she began to spew out all kinds of offenses. And it was definitely one of those, I can't believe this is happening to me moments. And I was looking around to see if there was any other ladies outside in case she did decide to take me out. And by the way, this is not the first time this has happened to me. And I was telling someone tonight what I've noticed in the last few years is not only is our society becoming more angry, but even in the church, I've noticed women are not afraid to become angry at me, get in my face, 
and, uh, you know, just be very disrespectful. And I have to tell you, I, I was, it kind of took me by surprise, but I was thankful that the Lord gave me a very calm spirit and I was able to handle the situation and diffuse it and get back inside just in case she did try to take me out. Now, I say all that to say this. I have not gone through the sufferings that our brother Paul has gone through. I mean, I haven't even begun to, to touch what that man went through. But ladies, we all should know, just like Paul, the sufferings that we experience here, they're just temporary inconveniences. In fact, my daughter's just told me recently, she said, Mom, you're going to get killed on one of these trips. And she said, Dad's going to finally have that first martyr he's been wanting. And uh, he used to say it was going to be Cindy, but now I think it's going to be his wife. But notice what Paul describes his sufferings as. He says, afflictions in his flesh or his body, we might say. Now, you might say, well, what is he talking about? Well, remember from our first lesson, Paul is in prison at this time, and so he certainly would be suffering in the flesh. Ladies, imprisonment in the biblical world was not anything like our imprisonment. We think of going to prison, and we think, you know, we get to work out, and we get to watch TV, and we get to have a computer, and we get a bed, and we get to eat, and we get money, and we get to go to the canteen, and all that stuff. But in the in the biblical world, prison imprisonment was very serious. Not only would Paul have been chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, but male and female prisoners were incarcerated together. Sexual immorality was rampant. They had very little food or water. Uh, they said, in fact, the smell from few toilets um, led to this stickening cinch. And most prisoners actually begged for uh, a speedy death or many of them just committed suicide. I mean, the, the prison was horrible. And Paul spent 25% of his life in prison. And so when he talks about his sufferings, it's not just the, the list that you saw in your homework this week, but he's talking about right then as he's writing this letter. I mean, can you imagine writing and, and, and this letter and you're sitting there smelling the sewage and, you know, the, the stuff that was going on? And Paul suffered many things. And I hope you notice here in this verse, notice what he says. He says, I'm now rejoicing right now. Now, ladies, put yourself in the Apostle Paul's shoes. Do you think you could now rejoice being chained to a Roman soldier and smell that stench and, you know, all the stuff that was going on? In the midst of the trial, he rejoices. Can you? It's like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.10, I'm sorrowful but always rejoicing. And Paul is not bipolar. I mean, he can be sorrowful but always rejoicing. Well, also notice in this verse, Paul says this suffering was for them. It's for them. It's not so that he would be recognized. It's not so that people would feel sorry for him. But it was for the church at Colossae. Ladies, this means it was for the sake of them, for their behalf, for their account. In fact, Paul says something very similar in 2 Timothy 2 to the church at Ephesus. He says this, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even though the word of God is not bound. And he says, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. He says, I do all this for the elect's sake, that they might obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And so, ladies, I think this should cause us to ponder and ask ourselves, why do we serve the Lord? Why? I know everyone in you, of you in here that has a spiritual gift, you hopefully are using it for the Lord. But why do you do it? Why do you serve the Lord? Is it for him? Is it for those that you serve? 
What are our motives? Is it to be recognized? Why do we do the things that we do? And Paul says, I do this for you. Now, he ends verse 24 with a very mysterious phrase that has puzzled many scholars for many years. In fact, this is one of the most debated verses in the entire Bible and Whole books have been written on this one verse. And I'm going to give you three possible interpretations really quickly, and I'm going to give you the one that I think it is. I am not going to give you the thousand interpretations, and I'll tell you why I think the one that I think is correct. Some people say, and I think this interpretation is ludicrous, that Christ's atonement was lacking. And so Paul's sufferings were to fill up what was lacking in Jesus's sufferings. And I say that is ridiculous. Paul did not help with the atonement. Christ's atonement was sufficient, and it didn't lack anything. Remember, we already saw this in Colossians 1.12. If you'll turn back there, he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, he's delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing lacking in the atonement of Christ. Also, Paul says in Hebrews, by one, by one offering he has perfected them that are sanctified forever. So throw out that interpretation, okay? Another view that's possible, but I don't think it's the right one, is that other people benefited by Paul's suffering. In other words, they would watch the Apostle Paul suffer. They would be encouraged on how he suffered. And I think, you know, that's true. As I watch men and women suffer for the sake of Christ, I'm encouraged by that. It spurs me on to go through suffering and not to coil from it. I think that's true, but it's not the proper interpretation. The interpretation that I believe is correct after studying this passage is this. What was lacking was not Christ's sufferings, but Paul's sufferings. Paul says, I want to fill up what is lacking in my sufferings so that I can be more like Jesus. Paul wanted to be so much like Christ that he wanted to suffer more. It's like he says to the church at Philippi. He says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of what? His sufferings, so that I might be made conformable to the death of the cross. He wanted to look so much like Christ that he wanted to suffer like he did so that he could identify with him. One man said this, Having this strong wish, he led to pursue a course of life which conducted him through trials strongly resembling those which Christ himself endured. As fast as possible, he was filling up that in which he fell short. Ladies, Paul wanted to be so much like Jesus that he not only wanted to live like Jesus did, but he wanted to suffer like Jesus did. And so he says, I want to fill up what is lacking in me. I want to suffer more like Christ. And uh, that's kind of a rebuke to our modern Christianity, isn't it? One of my favorite commentators, Albert Barnes, says this, Many are willing to reign with Christ, but they would not be willing to suffer with him. Many are willing to wear a crown of glory like him, but not the crown of thorns. Many would be willing to put on robes of splendor, which will be worn in heaven, but not the scarlet robe of contempt and mockery. Now, before we go on, there's other thoughts on this verse, and you can study them on your own. Maybe you can write a book and add it to all the books that have been written on this verse. 
But uh, anyway, that's what I believe it means after <clears throat> studying. So we move from Paul's rejoicing in ministry to Paul's responsibility in ministry. Look at verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which God, from, from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And so Paul mentions here he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. And we saw last week that a minister is just a table waiter. It's somebody who runs errands. They're not, there are no Christian celebrities. I know we put people that are in the Christian world on pedestals. There are no Christian celebrities. Even the man that you admire most or the woman you admire most, they're slaves. They're servants, just like you are. There's no hierarchy in the Christian world. Remember, that's Gnosticism. That's what the Gnostics taught. They were in the know and they looked down on others. But you might say, well, how did Paul get this job of being a table waiter? How did he get this job of being a steward? Did he just wake up one morning and said, you know what? I think I'll be a minister of the gospel. No, notice what he says. It was from God. In other words, it was commissioned by God. It was a divine appointment. In fact, the word steward actually speaks of a house steward, which in the biblical world was given the responsibility of administering the rules of the house. The steward, if you had a steward in your home, they would minister the financial affairs. They would oversee all the servants in your home and things like that. So that would free the, the owner of the home to travel and do the things that he would do. And so you can imagine a steward was a very trusted position. I mean, if I think about having someone come into my home and manage my financial affairs and my servants, which I have none of, but, you know, in India and those third world countries, I think it's it's interesting. They all have sle- they all have little servants in their home that do things. But um, if I had someone come in my home and manage my finances and manage my servants that I don't have, that would have to be a very trusted position, right? And so it was a very trusted position that Paul was in to be a steward, and he was given this responsibility. So just like he's suffering for their behalf, he is also ministering for them. Now, ladies, this call on Paul's life was not for him. It wasn't to build his self-esteem, but it was for them. And God gave Paul this ability for the benefit of others, just as he gives you and he gives me Gifts for the ability to minister to others. It's not about us. It's about God and it's about serving others. In fact, Paul writes about this in the sister epistle in Ephesians. He says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the perfecting of the work. For what? The building up of the saints. It's for the saints. It's not for you. It's for the people that are in the body of Christ. And I think we would be wise as women to evaluate why do we do the things that we do. Is it for recognition? Is it for some selfish ambition? And if it is, we need to repent and we need to ask God that we would do the things that we have been gifted to do for his glory and the service of others. Remember, ladies, even Jesus, it says about him, he did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. It was for others. Well, Paul ends this verse by writing this charge to be a minister was given to fulfill the word of God. In other words, to satisfy or to complete the word of God. Paul's desire was to preach the word of God. It was to be proclaimed and he wanted to preach it faithfully and completely. 
and he wanted to be true to that. Now, ladies, I am grieved. I am very grieved because we are living in an age where there are few pastors that are carrying out the preaching of God's word. And Debbie and I are seeing it more and more. Uh, you might have a lot of cute stories. You have some YouTube clips. You have some skits on Sunday morning. But I will tell you right now, in fact, I was talking to my daughter-in-law today as I dropped my grandsons off yesterday. But we were talking about it. And uh, there is a famine in our land for the word of the Lord. The churches are not teaching the Bible anymore. Ladies, Paul says, I want to come. I want to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the word completely and fully. Ladies, it's the word of God that changes lives. It's not philosophy. It's not man's ideas. In fact, I'm often puzzled by churches that do not preach the word of God. Even many women uh, I know, women's Bible, Bible studies, I call that loosely, that gravitate to fuzzy devotional material, but they're not interested in studying the Bible. We are living in a very serious age where we're seeing more and more of that go on. In fact, Paul told young Timothy, he said, preach the word, be diligent in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Why? For the time is going to come. And ladies were there. Well, they will not endure sound doctrine. But what they want, they want their ears tickled. They want to hear fables, but they don't want to hear the word of the Lord. Ladies, we need ministers like Paul and Timothy who will preach the word completely and fully in its entirety. Well, speaking of the word of God, Paul then gives a description of this word in verse 26. He says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now, we've had this word mystery before. It's just something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed. In fact, turn over. I'd like you to turn over to the uh, sister epistle, Ephesians chapter 3, because Paul elaborates a little bit more about what this mystery is, and it's really not a mystery, but it was a, it was a mystery to the saints in the Old Testament, but it's not a mystery to us. Ephesians 3, notice verse 1, Paul writes this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men and has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I become a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So what's the mystery? The mystery is the gospel, right? Paul clearly says what it is. Ladies, the Christian mystery is not secret knowledge for a select few, like the false teachers were saying. The mystery was opened all. It was hidden in past generations. But ladies, it is not. It has now been revealed. You know, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't understand. They had a fuzzy vision of what was going to happen and Christ's suffering and atonement. They had prophets that would prophesy, but it was a mystery back then. But Paul says it was hidden from ages, but now it has been revealed to the saints. It's been made clear. It's been made apparent. 
In fact, the word is, it's as clear as daylight now, so to speak. And saints, of course, would be those who are called of God. Well, this mystery, this gospel, which was once hidden, has now been offered, and it's been offered even to the Gentiles. Look at verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What did God make known? The riches or the abundance of the mystery. And ladies, it's not just offered to the Jews. It's been offered to you. It's been offered to me. We are Gentiles. In fact, do you remember when God called Paul on the Damascus road? You know what he told him? He said, I'm calling you what? To go to the Gentiles, to deliver them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive an inheritance among them that are sanctified in me. That's why Paul was chosen from God. To take the gospel, which we call the mystery that was once hidden in the past, but now is offered not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And notice what Paul calls this. He says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Interesting, those words Christ in you means he is there in you. It's a fixed position. He cannot leave. Isn't that exciting? I love Hebrews. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. Christ in you. It is a fixed position. Ladies, once he's there, it's a done deal. It is a done deal. We're sealed into the day of redemption. And no one can pluck us out of our Father's hands. Praise be to God. Now, ladies, this is our hope, Paul says, which means this is our anticipated pleasure. Ladies, I hope that you are overcome with gratitude at the thought that Christ is in you. It's a fixed position. You who were once cut off, alienated from Christ, enemies by your wicked works. But now we have Christ. He is our hope. And it is a done deal. You know, the Gnostics, false teachers, they would just offer their gospel for a select few. But Paul says, no, it's offered to all. It's offered to all. In fact, did you notice some interesting facts in this text about this mystery? The mystery was made known by God. It's rich. It's glorious. It's available to the Gentiles. It is Christ in me, and it is the hope of glory. Ladies, it certainly was not a mystery that was for the Gnostics, but it was for those who God elected to be his children. Well, what was Paul's responsibility in ministry? If you're taking notes to minister the word of God, (laughs) to minister the word of God. So we now turn from his responsibility in ministry to his reason for being in the ministry. And ladies, it was not for money and it was not to promote himself as some are doing today. It was something a little bit different. Let's peer into verse 28 and see why he was in the ministry. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, did you notice that Paul's changed the pronoun from me to we? So who's he talking about? Well, remove the cobwebs from your head and go back to our first lesson. Remember, Paul was there with who? Timothy. So he's talking about the two of them. And Paul says, whom we preach. Timothy and me, we preach, we teach every man. 
And what do they preach and teach? The gospel. You know, in our day, we have some who preach politics, some who preach religious rights, some who preach rights of the LGBT community, some who preach rights for women. But Paul and Timothy, and ladies, for us, we should preach one thing, and that is Christ. Now, the word preach means to declare or to proclaim. And notice, according to this verse, there are two elements. And ladies, both of these are very important. When we're going to talk about Scripture and passing on Scripture, there's two things that are very important if we're going to talk about the Word of God. He says we preach and we teach. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, He says, we preach and teach, warning every man. This means to caution people, reprove them, gently admonish. And ladies, I think this is something that's sorely lacking, not only in the pulpit, but in people's personal lives. We shy away from lovingly warning other people, from reproving each other, uh, exhorting one another. And I think the reason is because we fear each other more than we fear God. And uh, But out of love, we should be willing to go to a brother or to a sister and warn them if they need to be warned. We need to reprove others if they need to be reproved. In fact, remember, Paul told the um, elders um, in Acts, the elders at Ephesus, he said, For three years I warned you day and night with tears. Uh, Paul was so concerned at the el- for the elders at Ephesus. He says, I've warned you about this three years. And he said, after my departure, some of you are going to fall away from the faith and you're going to bring disciples to follow after you. And he said, don't don't forget this. I warned you guys about this for three years. And Paul was a man of compassion and he did this reproof with tears. In fact, to the church at Corinth, who was living very carnally, he says, I don't write these things to shame you. But as my beloved children, I warn you. And, of course, we know they were allowing incest in the church. And so he warns them. He admonishes them as his beloved children. And, ladies, I could give you numerous examples from the apostles' preaching and our Lord's preaching where they warned each other. They warned people of the need to repent. And we need to remember there's a judgment to come. I know we don't like to talk about the judgment to come, but it's not going to make it not come just because we don't like to talk about it and we don't preach it. There's a judgment to come and we should not let fear keep us from doing the right thing. But remember, do it in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you are tempted. And I know as a pastor's wife, I don't know why it is, but you know, as much as Doug and I talk about it, from this podium right here, a lot of people have the misconception that it's my job and Doug's job to do all the warning and reproving, but it's not. If you know a brother or sister and they need to be warned and they need to be reproved, uh, then you do that. In fact, when we get to Colossians 3.16, he's going to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's what you all are to be doing, teaching and admonishing one another. And, of course, they did it in an interesting way, but we're, I'm jumping ahead in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we'll talk about that when we get to Colossians 3. But ladies, all of us should be involved in this. In fact, Paul says in Romans, he says, uh, I myself am confident concerning your, you, brethren. You're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you're able to admonish each other. And so he tells that to the church at Rome. It's not just for pastors and pastors' wives. We all should love each other enough and 
Be able to warn gently when we need it. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful for the women in my life. I'm grateful for a husband and a daughter and even a son now that um, are willing to admonish me when I need to be admonished, when I need to be lovingly warned. And, you know, we all have blind spots. Uh, I remember I was discipling a girl many years ago, and I said, what do you want in our time together? And she said, I want you to help me with those blind spots that I don't see. And we all have those, right? We all have those blind spots in our life, and we need to lovingly help each other when we step out of line spiritually. Now, the second way Paul and Timothy proclaim Christ is not just by the preaching, which is the warning part, but the teaching. Now, what does that mean? Well, teaching means to instruct and to impart truth. And Paul says, notice, it's done in all wisdom, in all wisdom. So, ladies, a preacher or a teacher of God's word will warn and teach But it's followed with practical wisdom, practical admonition. That's what the wisdom is. This is where we take what we hear, the warning and the teaching, and we put it into practice. There should be practical admonition. Um, I know some women who come to Bible study, and I'm not picking on anybody in this room, but I'm just saying I know people that go to Bible study, and um, they shy away from the hard study. They don't want to do in-depth Bible study, and that's not good. But I know some women, they shy away from my application. I'm picking on you now. They shy away from those application questions. Those are hard. Those hurt. But, ladies, that's not good either. That's not good either. Both are equally important, the preaching, the, the studying, and the teaching, but also the practical stuff. Some preachers only teach and warn, and some only give practical application, but a good steward of God's word will do both, and that's what Paul says. That's what he and Timothy do. Now, you might say, well, why do they do that? Notice what he says. They preach and teach so that they can present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Ladies, the words may present mean to stand beside or to recommend And Paul says, we want to present you perfect, which means we want to present you full grown or complete. Ladies, Paul and Timothy, their desire was to preach and teach so that they could recommend those believers at Colossae on that day when they stand before the Lord and give an account of how they've shepherded as full grown and mature Christians. Ladies, do you know? One day, every pastor is going to stand before the Lord. Peter talks about this. When the chief shepherds appears, those shepherds are going to appear, and they're going to give an account for their flocks. And one day, they're going to stand before the Lord, and any shepherd worth his salt is going to desire to present his congregation as what? Complete. They're full grown. They're mature. They've taken the truths that I've taught, and they've gone out the door, and they've applied them, and they're grown up. They're not still walking around in their spiritual diapers. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to present you perfect and complete, full grown and mature. And I know that's my husband's desire. I don't know how many times we've we've talked as husband and wife privately. And, you know, sometimes people get it 
get the stuff, they get the meat of the word, and they start growing and changing. And other times we have people in the church, and it just seems like year after year after year they stay the same. And i like, are they hearing the same messages that we're hearing? Or what is the deal? And how come there is no spiritual growth? But I know that is his desire, that is my desire, that we can present those perfect and complete. In fact, Paul reiterates this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, what is our hope or joy or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You are our glory and joy. In fact, to the writer of the Hebrews says this, obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourselves to them. Why? For they watch for your soul. And he says, you will give an account on that day and you better submit to them. Why? Because it will be profitable for you on that day. And uh, they want to do that with joy and not grief. Well, by the way, have you noticed how much of what Paul does is for them? How many times has he said that this already? It's not for himself. It's not even for spiritual rewards he might receive, but it is for them. Also, another interesting side note is this. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 22 from last week, uh, Christ presents us. And then in this week, we see that Christ presents them in verse 28. I thought that was an interesting note. Well, Paul makes it clear to the Colossians that this completion or perfection is in Christ, not in themselves. Ladies, it's not by our works, because if it was, we would boast. And this is very important that he puts this in here, because the false teachers were teaching a work-oriented system. And Paul says, no, it is not. It is not by our own works. And ladies, another thing I think we should point out here too is i don't know if you notice paul uses the word every man three times whom we preach warning every man teaching every man that we may present every man in christ jesus anytime you see that in scripture there's emphasis or repetition it is there for a purpose and you might say why is he saying that because he's acknowledging the gospel is for everyone, every man, not just a select few as the false teachers were teaching them. It was offered to everyone. Paul believed Christ could save anyone, and he saw the potential in everyone. Do you? You know, sometimes I look at people and I think, will they ever change? Will they ever come to Christ? Will they ever get the gospel? Ladies, the gospel is offered to all, and it can change the most unlikely of individuals. So what is Paul's reason for ministry? If you're taking notes, to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So we've seen Paul's rejoicing in ministry, his responsibility in ministry, and his reason for ministry, and now we come to Paul's resource in ministry. You know, sometimes I read about the Apostle Paul, and I'm like you. I did my lesson this week, and I was looking at all the things he went through, and I go, how did Paul do this? I mean, even Starbucks wasn't invented yet. And how did Paul do all this? I think, aren't you tired yet, Paul? I get tired thinking about all that he did. But you know what? He didn't do it in his own strength. Look at verse 29, and here we see where his resource came from. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul says, for this end, this reason, I labor. And the word labor there means to work as if you had taken a beating. And he says, I I labor, I strive. In fact, it means to to agonize like in an athletic event or a fight. 
Ladies, Paul did not shrink from the hard work in ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, so that we would not be burdensome to you. In fact, Paul was not the only one that labored to the point of exhaustion. We've been looking at Martin Luther lately in our church because of Reformation, the 500 year of the Reformation. But uh, it was said of Martin Luther that he worked so hard that many times he just fell into bed at night. G.L. Moody's bedtime prayer on many occasions was, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. <laughs> John Wesley rode 60 to 70 miles a day on a horse and would preach an average of three sermons a day. It was exhausting. And ladies, serving the Lord many times is exhausting, but it's a good exhaustion. And there's no better life. But we do not do the work of the ministry in our own strength. Praise God, because we can't do it in our own strength. If we did, we'd throw up our hands and give up, right? And Paul didn't do it in his own strength. Notice what he says. In the Lord, his working, which works in me mightily. In fact, the working there is the power, the energy that works mightily or actively in him. It's that dynamite power. Ladies, Paul knew without the power of God working in him, he couldn't do the work of the ministry. There's no way, Paul. When you read those lists, there is no way Paul could do the things that he did without the work of the Lord, without the Lord helping him. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all of you. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. That's how he did it. In fact, in Ephesians, he says, of which I am a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me of his effective working of his power. In fact, Jesus is very clear in John 15 when he's talking about the vine and the branches. And he says, without me, you can do nothing. And ladies, if you try to do something on your own, it's not going to work. I know I've, I've, I've been doing this long enough and I know that when I'm trying to do it, my own power and I can't do it. But in his power and by his strength, we can serve him. So Paul's rejoicing in ministry was where he rejoiced in his sufferings. What sufferings have you gone through recently, especially at, as it pertains to your service to God? Did you find yourself rejoicing or murmuring? Do you serve the Lord with joy even when things aren't so good? Paul's responsibility was to minister the word of God, not man's ideas, but God's pure and sufficient word. When you minister to others, your family, your friends, your church, do you minister the truth of the word or do you gravitate to the novel ideas out there? Do you know the word well enough that you can minister it to others? What is Paul's reason for ministry was to present them perfect and complete before the Lord on that day. What is your reason or what are your reasons for serving the Lord? Fame, fortune, self-esteem, to impress others. Ladies, we must carefully examine why we do what we do in ministry and repent of any other reason than the glory of God and the desire to help other people. And lastly, Paul's resource in ministry was the mighty power of God. Do you try and serve the Lord in your own strength or his strength? Do you pray and ask God to enable you to accomplish his will in you? Well, as we close chapter 1 and meditate on these truths, I don't know about you, but we can praise God because none of us in this room are just housewives or just mothers or just employees or just American citizens. 
We've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be used for his kingdom and glory. And my friend, that is privilege. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the fact that you do give us the resources and ministry by your mighty strength and your power. And I pray for all of us, Lord, whatever our gifts are, whatever our vocation is, that, Lord, we would do the things that we do, not for fame or fortune, but, Lord, only for the glory of God, to put him on display and for the good of others. Lord, we know that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. And on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And that's our desire is to glorify you forever. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the mindset of, of the Apostle Paul, Lord, and our brother Timothy as well. Guide us as we go into our groups, and I pray that our discussion would be rich and um, truthful with each other and that we might uh, lovingly help each other and encourage each other in these days in which we live. And I pray this for Christ's sake, for his glory. Amen.